0: Hello, and welcome to the third in a series of podcasts to promote the Reintroduction and Rewilding Summit, which will be held on the 10th of April this year. The summit is run by the Birds of Pool Harbour, the charity dedicated to educating people on the stunning variety of birdlife in one of the country's most picturesque locations, and the self isolating Bird Club, a virtual space for wildlife watchers and enthusiasts set up by broadcasters Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin. My name is Charlie Moores and last week I spoke with White Stork Project Officer Lucy Groves, a conservation biologist based at the world-renowned rewilding centre at NEP. Lucy works for one of the White Stork Project partners, the Jersey-based Dorrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. Today I'm talking with Harvey Tweets and Tom Whitehurst of Celtic Amphibian and Reptile, a relatively new company which captive-breeds European species of herptiles and which, according to their website, strives for the consolidation of reptile and amphibian species in Europe, leading the way to a more dynamic and interesting world. With aims to reintroduce a missing species of the UK's herpetofauna, the duo's profile was raised enormously by an article in the Guardian newspaper by Patrick Barkham, which was published in January. An article which led to comments that praised the vision and enthusiasm of the business and criticism that there were plans to release non-native species into the UK. There are emphatically no such plans. And questions over the origin of some of their captive specimens. Harvey and Tom assured me by email that their founding stock is captive bred, coming from private breeders and sometimes zoos. The only exception being that some of the native species were given to them because of mitigation measures or rescues from cat attacks. And those animals could not be re-released due to injuries. So, on to the interview which covers rewilding across the UK, working with existing organisations, that important question of native versus non-native the remarkable group of rewilding and reintroduction specialists that form Celtic's advisory board, and how the two of them have reacted to feedback from that Guardian article. First, though, Harvey gave me an overview of why he and Tom set up Celtic Amphibian and Reptile and what they hope to achieve.
1: We are an organisation which captive breeds European species of reptile and amphibian Some British natives, but also some extinct British natives. And basically what we aim to do is to try and push for the reintroduction and restoration of these species uh, in line with the sort of incredible movement which is mobilised, which is rewilding. It's estimated that maybe a million acres or so will become online, as it were, over the next sort of 30 years because of rewilding projects, mainly self-willed re- rewilding projects where it's private landowners who are, you know, rewilding huge areas of land. And although many, you know, the common species of reptile and amphibian do colonize, you know, you only have to look at the nepa state and the slow worms now colonizing, grass snakes, common lizards, common frogs. Species like the pool frog, which are very localised, and other species which are totally extinct, like the agile frog, the moor frog, and possibly the tree frog, there's no chance that they'll ever colonise these sort of rewilding projects. And so what we aim to do is investigate the ability to be able to restore these species back to uh, Britain, because each one fills a different ecological niche. I mean, each one breeds at a different time of the year. Each one is active at different times of the day. And each one has a different type of call of which many birds from herons to egrets to possibly one day even Dalmatian pelicans can all pick up on. And it's basically, you know, with restoring these species, what you are restoring is a constant buffet for a
0: complete, (laughs) you know, swathe of different species. Are you essentially saying that you're breeding up animals as food for other animals higher up the food chain?
2: Yeah, it, that's that's essentially what we're doing, but it sounds quite counterproductive, really, because why would you want to breed something that's just going to get eaten? But people got to understand that we are trying to restore the food chain. We aren't trying to preserve these animals and keep them safe. We're trying to restore ecological balance, which it's so important that you provide food. It's it's all like I say, it's all a balance really. And and I think species
1: special interest groups have got a lot to answer for, I think, in the current ecological climate. And what I mean by that is when we when we're moving forward, you know, we're moving away from the idea of keeping habitat, you know, locked down and traditionally managed as if it were a Victorian garden. And
0: reserves. Exactly, yeah. You know, small
1: penny packet reserves. And we're moving towards more functionality, the idea that we need ecosystem services, we need flood mitigation, we need extinction prevention, we need carbon sequestration. And the problem with species interest groups is they are amazing at preserving a species, you know, that's just clinging on, but they're not so good at restoring functionality. And what we're advocating is, for instance, to bring, say, the pool frog back to basically the whole of England instead of a few ponds. And the work that people are doing on those few ponds is absolutely revolutionary and it's brilliant. But I think that we need to be bolder in our approach to, you know, restoring species. Because the pool frog, unlike, say, the common frog, it's aquatic. It lives sort of mainly in the water and, and is, a di- again, a different food source for a different, you know, amount of, of creatures. I was in Spain, actually. I was uh, in southern Spain and there's a species there called Perez's frog that the... the uh, it's called uh, Pelophylax perezi and it's a water frog that's just like the pool frog it fills the same niche but it's but it's more it's more sort of a southerly species and i was on the beach and there was this little pond on the beach where a, a small spring sort of kept it topped up and there were all these perezi's frogs basking on the sand jumping into the water and one day i was walking back up from the beach and there was an otter in there completely snacking oh, on all really? these frogs that were in the water Um, And that sort of, you know, that sort of small ecological link, you know, won't be seen in Britain, you know, with the current amphibian assemblage, because the common frog is, is largely terrestrial, and it doesn't really live in high densities other than in the breeding season. And it's only when you go to places where their ecosystems are relatively intact, another example being Poland or Romania or Bulgaria, that you just see the incredible amount of diversity and links between species you would never think possible.
0: You know, what you've said there is going to upset some specialists, don't you guys? You know, and I would add that. You know, we don't have those larger landscapes available to, for example, pool frogs. I mean, surely, surely we have to start with small-scale introductions, one pool at a time, even if it's just to work out precisely what these animals need to thrive.
2: I think, I think that's something that you have to you have to start small and then work your way up. You can't all of a sudden throw a thousand frogs in a thousand different pond, ponds across the country and expect to get it right. It's, it's you've got to do a lot of testing you've got to do a lot of surveying the land working out what sort of habitats are the best for these different species but i think now what we've what people have done conservationists have done with the pool frog i think we've got enough evidence enough data now to go and apply that to restoring the entire country with these frogs
1: I think, I think one of the, the pieces of data which comes to mind is the Lawton scale. Basically, what John Lawton, Sir John Lawton, the legend, did was, was correlate management intensity, biodiversity, and size of reserves on a graph. And basically, what you found is the bigger the reserve, the more exponentially wildlife increased, but at the same time, the way less management and the way less money, say, per acre... It costs to look after that land, and the reason is the more land you give, the more chance for diversity and ecological heterogeneity you have, and therefore more species can live there. You know, it's really simple. It's 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 obvious. And so, what we need to do, and it's ve- and you know, me saying this is incredibly rad- radical, and it puts my neck on the line. <laughs> but we've got we've got to be moving away from small reserves and restoring land. And the idea that we don't have land to do that on, or we don't have the money, is completely not true. Although cuts have been made you know, through the government to conservation, the amount of private money now in ecological restoration is at an all-time high. The amount of land that we've got is only going to increase with Brexit. It's, you know, Brexit's done so many awful things already to the country, but at least one of the silver linings is the fact that we won't have as rigorous as a cap subsidy system. And so yeah. there'll be lots more land to be able to do this. And with the with the ELMS scheme, the environmental land management scheme, which seems pretty promising, uh, farmers and landowners will be incent- incentivised to restore habitats.
0: Well, that's, that's surely the point. I mean, I'll say it again, that as of now, we don't have those habitats. So conservationists have been doing what they can with what's been available to them. I mean, we've lost half a million ponds in the last hundred years. Many of the ponds we've got left are in dire condition. Yeah. I I understand what you're saying, but you're almost implying that organisations lack the ambition to think bigger. Isn't there a danger you'll be alienating the expertise you, you need to work with right from the outset?
1: Well, I, I I don't think they they lack ambition at all. I mean, you just have to look at the uh, nature recovery network that the Wildlife Trust have outlined, which is incredibly inspirational. And also talking about the Wildlife Trust, the beaver trial in Devon that they spearheaded. There are lots of yeah. very bold plans, but what I'm what I'm I'm not saying that they aren't moving forward. What I am saying is that we are going to move forward because that's the way, the direction things are heading. Um, and talking about ponds and things. It's, an, it's absolutely dreadful to see the statistics of, you know, what we've lost. I mean, 98% of ancient woodland, uh, 95% plus of meadows, etc. Uh, and I think the answer to that is re- restoration because the problem that you're facing is a shift in land use. You know, we've gone from sort of small land holdings, you know, pr- the pre-Second World War era to more industrial agriculture where it suits yeah. Um, And the problem is we're never going to be able to get farmers to, you know, grow meadows as much anymore. Yes, we can we can subsidize it. But just the very nature of the system is that, you know, that is never going to happen again. But what we can do is we can take places like the Nepa state and areas of ground which aren't suitable for intensive agriculture and, you know, restore the full trophic levels of the ecosystem like what what the NEP state have done of course they don't have predators yet but you know as more land comes online who knows what could happen
0: you guys are really passionate about this and you've clearly thought hard about what you want to do i'm just a little concerned that at this stage you may be getting ahead of yourselves
2: yeah i think it's vital that we we look at all different angles on this situation because from from our perspective, it's very easy to just say, um, we can breed frogs, so let's get them out into the wild. There's there's obviously a lot more to play and a lot more pieces of the puzzle that need to be there in order for this to work. Like you say, we need to ensure that the the habitats and the landscape is there before we put frogs in, or whatever species it may be. Otherwise, it's just not going to work.
0: Yeah, but absolutely. I think there's
2: a lot of projects going on at the moment that we can collaborate with and that other people across the country can collaborate with and make this a, a, upscale this a little bit more than just a few ponds. Obviously a thousand ponds isn't isn't realistic at the moment but like, like Harvest mentioned the Nepa state there's wild east project there's loads of different projects going on that we could potentially supply with animals and different species sort of like a tester like it's happened with the pool frogs they've tested yeah. a few ponds we can test maybe 10 or 20 even more ponds and see where we can go from there when people start to see that this works that th- these habitats do work for different species and, and extinct species in the uk i think it will incentivize people to rewild their own land at a much much larger rate i really do
0: do you see the arguments about whether certain species were ever here in the UK, so are native or are non-native, in other words? Do you see that as a distraction or as a valid and a fair point of debate? Definitely a fair point.
1: I mean, we've got to be completely scientifically rigorous. I mean, there's the, you know, invasive species are a real threat to biodiversity. Yeah yeah um and if you actually look at the evidence it, it is 100 percent certain that the agile frog and the moor frog were here uh, we've got saxon remains and we've even got potentially 15th century remains and there are a couple of historical accounts of those species the tree frog is mentioned quite a few times historically but we don't have any remains of it and the reason why we don't have any remains of it probably are because uh it's very fragile I presume, i've i've Preparing a specimen at the moment using taxidermy beetles. And the actual bones are like splinters and even smaller than splinters. And the chance that these tiny bones could be fossilized would be, you know, nil. And on continental Europe, only about 3% of all frog bones are tree frogs. And so it just goes to show that right, they make up right. a tiny proportion. And on top of all of this, just to just to elaborate on the 3%, take a country like France, and it's massive, you know, uh, there's only two specimens of tree frogs, only two fossil tree frogs from the Holocene. We're d- actually doing some work at the moment, looking at the the historical accounts of tree frogs. Going to try and spatially map where the accounts are to see n- right. the sort of range that they could have had. The leading theory at the moment as to why they're here is because of medical use, uh, people importing them, and we're going to obviously have a look into this theory. But many naturalists actually exclaimed that they were native. Um, for instance, Edward Topsell, who, who, who wrote the History of Four-Footed Beasts and Serpents in 1646, I think something like that, uh, spoke about how um, the tree frog is native of this country, and he used language to that effect. So yeah, there's there's obviously lots of work that needs to be done. But the agile frog and the moor frog are pretty secure that they are that they are native species. Coming back round to to the answer to your question, yeah, we've got to be completely scientifically transparent and completely scientifically vigorous with what we do, because we cannot be introducing something that's not native. But at the same time, we've got to be bold in our approach and we've got to, to, you know, when there's a consensus, we've then got to act. Because basically what happened with the pool frog is um, the amazing work that was done, sort of the scientific work that was done, took a while, and in that time, the pool frog, unfortunately, went extinct, yeah. which is, you know, basically, you know, we kind of studied it to death, not to discredit any of the amazing people who worked on that project, but uh,
0: but yeah, we've got to be quick. Sure. But to be absolutely clear on this point, if the scientific consensus says that tree frogs are non-native, you wouldn't push for their release. Definitely. 100%. Oh, well, that's clear enough. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you talk about a conservation imperative on your website and that you want to achieve two important goals up close education and a crucial insurance policy can you explain up close education and what what education you think the public needs
2: I, th- I think the public and of any age group can benefit from understanding the the different species that not only live Possibly in their back garden, but also just across the channel in the main continent, Europe. I think it's vital that people know that there's snakes in the UK. People don't know that, believe it or not. That there's lizards in the UK. People don't know that. It's crucial for anyone to know what is in their own country. How can you stop something from going extinct? How can you stop something from declining in the wild when you don't even know it's there? And this effort to stop species going extinct is definitely not just an effort from scientists. It's got to be a whole host of people helping out. It's got to be the the general public. They've got to have that support because without the the support of the general public, nothing can get done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The public needs to be on board. On that statement, though, what do you think conservation organisations haven't been doing that they should have been if you think the public don't know, there are lizards and snakes here in the UK. I mean, an awful lot of work has gone on to promote all sorts of biodiversity over the last few years.
1: Well, I, I think that I, d- I don't think conservation groups aren't doing anything. I think it just takes an effort from
0: absolutely everyone who's involved. So if I understand you right, you're saying that more needs to be done and you're adding to that effort. To yeah, the definitely. Existing effort. Yeah.
1: I think that if anyone is sort of spearheading a certain species or a certain imperative or a certain, um, you know, method of conservation, I think that you've got to add to what everyone else has been doing. And I think that that's what, you know, we're trying to do is is add to the amazing work that's already been done.
0: Okay. And um, the idea of the crucial insurance policy, that's about having a, a population in captivity as a backup. Absolutely. We're we're looking at potentially 50%
1: of Europe's amphibians and reptiles going extinct by 2050. One of the easiest ways to save amphibians and reptiles is captivity. And the reason why is that they're relatively well understood in terms of breeding. Uh, And also, they don't require any training, as it were, like, say, a lynx did before it gets released. (laughs) Right, Right. You know, their instincts are pretty much well ingrained into their brain. Um, and especially if you keep them as naturally as possibly, then you know they, they, do, they do really well. So one of the easiest ways just to ensure that we don't see horrendous species loss is captivity. And what we, are, what we are doing and what we are proposing is nothing, at least on the global stage, which is radical. You only have to look at America and many different private organisations and private people and breeders help to conserve, for instance, the spotted turtle help to conserve the western pond turtle. Australia, exactly the same. Australia introduced a policy whereby you can only keep native species in captivity, apart from zoos and licensed institutions. And because of that, they've now got an incredible network of people who are breeding very rare species and keeping the numbers high in captivity. Europe, for instance. It was a private breeder in France who saved the yellow-bellied toad from going extinct. The, the thing is, with private individuals like ourselves, how we differ to, say, like institutions like zoos is the fact that we can devote all of our time to a very select group of species. Right. Um. So, for instance, you know, a zoo has got, you know, quite rightly bigger priorities in terms of breeding, you know, very rare animals and, and, and animals which are which which private individuals couldn't keep. So, you know, it's not like we can have Siberian tigers anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> Um, But, you know, what we can do with what what we're doing is focus completely on these species. For instance, specifically in the reptile world, in the private world of reptiles, most of the world's first breeding successes have been done in private keepers' hands because of the fact that they can devote so much time to to just a specific group of animals. Um, You know, there's all sorts of examples where it's just been done privately, and that's where the first, you know, sort of captive bred animals have come from. I was speaking to someone from a zoo the other day and they were saying, you know, zoos are almost playing catch up with the work that private individuals are doing.
0: It is still a concept that makes people uncomfortable, though. You can understand that. But, you know, as you say, and whether we like it or not, captive breeding has been going on for decades all around the world with, with plenty of different taxa. I mean... You know, I hate the idea of birds in cages, but it's it's been done and it's helped reintroduce certain species of parrot, for example. Def, definitely. And I think, you know, I've got
1: friends in South Africa, I've got friends in Australia, friends in America. And in those other countries, it's not so sort of it's not so taboo. And it's interesting in the UK because I think that we this, it's a whole ecological restoration. Holistic conservation is a whole new sort of concept that combines captivity, reintroduction, etc. Whereas, you know, you go over to Australia, and that's just the norm. You know, New Zealand, for instance, saving the tuatara, and species, you know, like that, and all of their endemic reptiles, captivity is just sort of a day-to-day conservation action that they, you know, that they take. So I think that in terms of the, the UK, I think we are a bit a bit sort of hesitant because it's new and that's that's completely fine
2: i'll also add i think that a lot of people are hesitant about captivity in the uk because of how in the past as as a whole nation how our uh, captive care has been lacking it's not been it's not been great
0: that was the point i was going to move on to next yeah
2: and and what we're doing we're breeding in captivity but we're not sacrificing their welfare we're not sacrificing their health we are putting that first before Breeding numbers. We we could probably double how much we breed this year if we threw all the welfare out the window.
0: Yeah,
2: that that is something that's so important to us. If we're gonna work with these conservation projects, we've got to have a clean conscience, and we we've got to know we're doing the best we can for these animals because that's ultimately what it's all about. It's not about money. It's about the animals.
0: Yeah. Yeah, reading your website, it is very strong on on the ethics of keeping things. You you say that you make sure the animals are kept in as near natural conditions as possible and you like to give them the opportunity to engage in in natural behaviours, don't you? Massively. I mean,
1: to paint a picture, basically we've got about 10 common lizards. We've got a common lizard group that are going into a 2.5 metre by 2.5 metre enclosure. I mean, common lizards are six inches long. So to give you some idea, you know that's the size of a room in a yeah. house. Um, and these are all just for some small lizards because <laughs> that is what we think that you know, the ethical standard should be. And it shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't just stop it at that. We should keep advancing, keep advancing, keep advancing, using new technology. Um, because when we keep animals as, as properly as possible, both eliminating negative problems such as predators, disease, etc., as well as increasing positive behaviour, your animal just becomes a lot, a lot better, a lot healthier, and a lot more symbolic of what you find in the wild. So not only is that good in terms of a reintroduction standpoint, but at the same time, that's great, you know, for education purposes because we run photography workshops and things. Yeah. Because your animal, as it, it is, as if it is wild. So ethics is a massive, a massive pillar of, of, our, of, of our company because fundamentally you know, we we can't disre- disrespect the species as it were, even on an individual basis. Yeah.
2: I'll add again as well, um, our ethical care, it allows us to almost create like an instruction manual of how to breed and how to keep these species many of these species that we keep that there, there was hardly any information for us to go and refer to when we first got them, we've documented it all ourselves, we've had to learn from the animals with their own eyes. And I think that's vital. If we're ever going to try and put these species back in the wild, we need to know exactly what habitats they want, what food they want.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And that does bring me back to my earlier point about these small reintroduction projects having to learn this sort of information before looking at something bigger, that what they're doing is the correct way of doing things at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think that's... It it, it ultimately does all link back to being able to study these animals to to the maximum so that we can do things right on a larger scale and captivity is a huge part of that we need we need to have that that information that instruction manual like i mentioned on how to breed and how to keep these species
0: you persuaded me there actually um it's, it's not what i personally want to see long term but conservation isn't about my sensibilities and and what you say does make sense um you mentioned your photography workshops there. Is there any danger that your conservation message could be watered down by the commercial side of what you're doing? I mean, doesn't it make it easier for people to say you're just doing all of this to grow a business?
1: Well, if I wanted to make money, I definitely wouldn't go into this field. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> and, and and I think the, the main re, the main point that I'd like to make is that's why we're completely transparent with our with our ethical policy and our ethos because you know that those rules are printed and stuck on the walls so that every single day that we work we follow those guidelines um and i think that you know we've got we've got to attack attack the problem from all angles to be quite frank you know and you know if we want to fix anything we've got to include absolutely everyone or as many people as possible um and you know i think that that we we're going to be completely transparent and we always have been completely transparent about everything uh, because you know we want we we really you know it, it's easy for me to say yeah we're passionate but we've got to show that we are passionate about you know conservation
0: yeah and that takes time which of course you haven't had yet which i guess is part of why some people are skeptical it, it takes time definitely
2: yeah it's it's not something that we can go and achieve our goals overnight. No, of course not. You've got to convince people that you're going to be doing something that's positive. And that's, that's just really hard to do.
0: You say that, but you seem to have convinced some heavy hitters in the rewilding world already. You know, the likes of Derek Gow, Charlie Burrell of NEP, the goldsmiths. These are some influential people to have believing in you. Do you think you had the right ideas at the right time or perhaps just happened to be in the right place at the right time? how do those relationships come about and, and what do they bring you
1: well I, I think that I think that you know it's important to get people who believe in your mission and I think that these people that you know are are in our advisory board and, and, and have helped us in various different ways um, really want to see change you know I think that A great example is the Napa state, which, you know, at the start of the project, it was completely, even by ecologists, it was sort of, you know, tossed aside and said that this is just a waste of time. Landowners completely slated the, you know, Charlie and and, and Izzy for, uh, you know, coming out of agriculture. And now we look at it 20 years on and we see this incredible pulse of vegetation with wild herbivores roaming through it, with the only growing population of turtle doves, with nightingales singing their hearts out in every 10 metres of of the hedge. And I think that the State is an incredible metaphor for what can be done if we put our minds to it and if we don't listen to people who say that you can't. I mean, Derek Gow actually once told me that if you ever want to get anything done, you give it to the young. (laughs) Because, you know, frankly the young have not yet been told that they can't.
0: Yes, yes, yes. That's something that they say quite often in, in many walks of life, that young people have this enthusiasm to push forward because they haven't fully understood what obstructions end up being put in their place, which kind of sounds cynical, but it's true, unfortunately. And I think, you know, to some extent that I've got, you know, I put
1: myself in sort of people who've criticised us shoes to see sort of what you know, where does their rationale for criticising us come from? And I can right. totally understand the view because I can see how it does come across. You know, it's two young people who, you know, are, are foolish foolishly, you know, <laughs> George Monbiot said sort of in his boot, you know, young men are the reason why, uh, you know, wars get fought sort of thing. I think that it can come across as a bit sort of, Uh, you know tunnel visioned and and sort of a bit naive we we have
2: got the support around us that's what I will say
1: but the reality is you know you are you know as I'm talking to you now if there's a pulse going through my body you know I want these species back and I want a wilder world for my children to live in
0: I have to say you're very inspiring both of you you know I, I have to admit I wouldn't sure how this interview would go. I wasn't sure how open you'd be and how willing you appear to be to listen to what people are saying to you. But you know, it's no wonder that people like Derek Gow and Charlie Borrell believe in you. Um, tell me, what sort of impact did uh, Patrick Barkham's article in The Guardian last month have on you? It mean, certainly must have raised your profile through the roof, and that's not always easy to handle. Yeah,
1: I mean, um, the Guardian article was absolutely brilliant and I, I I did really love it. Some people didn't share that view. I think that that's pretty obvious. <laughs> but I, I think there were fundamental flaws with the article. Like there were just some fundamental, just uh, completely untrue statements. Like there was one statement where it said we wish to see Escalapian snakes reintroduced, which is not true. Um, and and the whole, the you know, I was speaking to Patrick and Patrick is an amazing guy. And, you know, um, it's hard to try and, compress down all of our rationale that's taken years and and, and so many people to develop into just mm. sort of a couple of pages of writing. So, you know, the, I can see why, you know... we Yeah, got, even for such a skilled writer. Yeah we, yeah, we got some sort of criticism from it. But ni- I, I did a quick quick bit of maths, and 99% of, of the response that we got from the article was overwhelmingly positive,
0: you know. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the comments below that article... Uh, someone had written that sometimes you find a story that restores your faith in human nature uh, I thought that must be a wonderful thing to be told you know especially at your age yeah. that what you're doing is is having that sort of impact on someone
1: yeah I'd, I'd, yeah definitely and we actually had one lovely worded email where someone said that you know I'd come through the coronavirus pandemic I'd lost my job. Um, and they were—they had something to do with ecology I can't quite remember and they basically said I read your article and um, it sort of almost cured my depression which was <laughs> incredible to hear um, well. and I think that you know I think it's because people just love change and people just want to see change happen and I know it's not easy and I know it's naive to assume that you know two 17 year olds can, can have change but to be quite frank you know i'm I'm on this earth I, i'm born because i actually want to do something and i will die trying you know if that's what it takes and you know with every bit of might and sort of inspiration in my body i will throw at this problem not just amphibians and reptiles but sort of the whole ecological problem you know itself
0: yeah 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 no i don't think it's too young at all i mean you should have that sort of unrestrained passion now I mean if not now when you know I felt I felt like that at your age I'm not sure what happened because I didn't do what you're doing I'm not sure why that was but you know I didn't so I applaud you for doing something and you know if you're taking advice and as I said just a few minutes ago you do appear open to that well that's great and I actually didn't want to bring up your age because I don't think that's so important it what is important is is the the interest, the the amount you're learning, the enthusiasm you bring and the way that you can communicate that to other people. And that doesn't matter whether you're ten or fifty, it shouldn't. But you can't avoid the elephant in the room that you are young and still have a great deal to learn and you are going to have your critics.
1: Definitely. Um I think that I think the younger generation have really sort of wisened up to the fact that the scale of the problem and the amount of sort of um, nonsense that surrounds the solutions to the problem. Um, I was I was actually on an interview with Bella Lack a few days ago. who's right. this incredibly inspiring young person, and I was talking to her, and I, I think kind of our thoughts on the whole issue really did line up really well, and I just think that we've kind of we kind of like to feel like we know what we're doing, and we kind of like to feel like we've got a grasp on the situation. But the actual solution, because it just turns out to be a mess. And, you know, it's all about organizing our attack. I said to Bella in that interview, I said, we are in a war. You know, when you actually think about sort of the severity we're dealing with and the timescale, 12 years to save the world, you know, this this is a war. Yeah. Yeah. And currently, you know, at least this is the way I feel. Maybe you you disagree. But currently, I feel like the the sort of effort to combat has been
0: pretty bad yeah, it's been fractured. It's, it's not been completely coherent. People have been working in silos and I, I definitely needed a rethink. And I think that's what's exciting me so much about rewilding. These, these small, isolated nature reserves were necessary at the time, but they were never going to be the solution. We need landscapes and we need far more people involved. And I
1: mean we've got the space to do it. I mean the idea, you know, the old chestnut that oh we you know we're too crowded in Britain is just not true. Yeah. The uh, you know, Snowdonia National Park is the size of the Masai Mara. Indeed. All of the deer estates in Scotland equate to the size of the Serengeti. And, you know, when we actually look at how much land needs to be farmed, there's at least thirty percent of land which is farmed for no reason really. There's plenty of space that we can experiment and sort of bring back real nature. And I think one of the nice things with the rewilding movement as well was the was the that attracted me at least was the sort of the element of just sort of um, the letting go you know and if a species yeah if a species you know does well in a certain habitat then that's brilliant but if it doesn't it's fine because we've got plenty of space for it to thrive elsewhere I think that we've got to be a lot more holistic in the way that we look at, you know, look at these problems and the way that we restore nature. Are you expecting your
0: ideas to evolve over time? 100%. This is, still a, this is still a relatively new project for you both, right?
1: Definitely. I mean, you know, as I say, we follow the science and we follow consensus and things, but at the same time, we try to make sure that we don't lose our imagination or, and, our, and our inspiration because... I think fundamentally in the conservation movement, we like to kind of convince ourselves that conservation is a hard science, but in all actuality, the actual act of conserving is because of just sheer will and just wanting to make a better place, or at least, you know, from me speaking to a wide range of ecologists and conservationists, that's their motivation. Right. Um, a lot of sort of projects that have actually been good have, have happened because individuals have just said, no, and I'm going to just do. And, you know, NEPA as I have mentioned earlier, is a great example. Um, and, you know, our our sort of mindset and our understanding of things, of course, will change. And that's just the whole point of not only just, you know, maintaining science within, you know, your ethos, but at the same time, being a human being. I mean, every single day, you know, we learn differently. You know, we learn about the world and, and our, our schemas change. I think that we've definitely got to do is always be open to every single person's sort of input on key issues we don't have to necessarily take the uh, the input and utilize it but i think we've definitely got to listen to it um and that's what was kind of great great about the criticism we got from the guardian because me, me and tom were like yes get in people are highlighting sort of flaws in in the you know well potential flaws in in our design and we were able to then plug the holes so for instance biosecurity we had a biosecurity protocol, but now we've actually consulted even more experts. The first yeah. one we did, we used a couple of people to to draw up, and, and because you know people were worried about biosecurity, to double down on that, we then got our methods reviewed, and we got even more people to overlook it, uh, and that's ongoing as we talk, um, and um, and yeah, and and it's just helped us really sort of um, sort of change um, key aspects of, of, of what we do. And the thing is, that's where the advisory board also comes in. And we're always open to having new people on there because we don't know much in terms of, you know, life experience. And the reality is, you know, there are a lot more people who are, who've got, you know, a bigger understanding of, of, of key issues. So, you know, the more people <laughs> we get on board, the better yeah. because the more sort of varied, you know, input we can get. We obviously, you know, don't want, you know, don't want to be too open minded that our brains fall out. But at the same time. Uh, yeah, we've got to take input from everywhere and
0: we should expect that our sort of rationale will always change and that is completely yeah. fine. I love the way you say you're going to add people to your advisory board when you've got some of the leading <laughs> rewilders on there already and it's just <laughs> for you. It's completely natural. Yeah, we we'll just get some more people on it. Well, that's fantastic confidence and why shouldn't you have that confidence? That's really great. As a final thought, and this is kind of aimed at the the both of you, my generation has not done a good job of looking after the planet. Is there enough people like you out there to make the difference? <laughs> I, I, yeah,
2: I think so, 100%. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that they can even make a difference. That's, that's something that we've, we've noticed as you know, 17-year-olds or whatever. We're young. We, we've got people in our school who want to help out who didn't even know that they could help out before. So so we've right. obviously we've told them what they can do and how to help. A lot of it is based around social media at this stage, especially for our people our yeah. age. Simply just sharing a message, sharing the problems, highlighting the issues is vital for change. Mm. Anything any change that happens in the modern day is going to be powered and sourced through social media. If you like it or not, it's that's that's a key aspect of it and young people have a very good understanding of how to do yeah. that. I
1: think also, I think that, you know, I was, we were in an ITV interview, and they asked me what my favourite species was. And my reply was people, because, you know, I think that people are absolutely incredible. And I think when we put our minds to it, and when we actually sort of grow up and push aside our egos and decide, we'll actually get something done if we collaborate, uh, we can make incredible things happen.
0: You guys give very good quotes. You know, I presume you're not media trained, but you give very good quotes. <laughs> and, That's quite a skill.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: I, and you know, I just
1: think that people, you know, we've got the potential to just do so much good if we decide to work together. I think that a, a large, lo- a large part of 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 our problems is the fact that we have an almost tribal mentality, whereby you know. We can be divisive over issues. And of course, you know, division and, and conversation creates uh, consensus. But at the same time, you know, we've got to decide that time is running out and we've got to, you know, well, <laughs> to throw in another quote El- Elvis Presley, um, <laughs> a little less conversation, a little more
0: action, please. <laughs> you know, I think that that's exactly what we need. What a fantastic place to leave it. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, You're both taking part in the reintroduction and rewilding summit in April. You looking forward to that? Yeah, we can't wait for that. Yeah, Yeah.
2: that'll be really good.
0: Yeah, it will. Well, thank you again for being a part of this podcast series. It's been very thought-provoking. And like I say, I'm sure people will be pulling out some very interesting quotes from what you said. So um, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Anytime. Great
2: to have a chat.
0: Harvey Tweets and Tom Whitehurst of Celtic Amphibian and Reptile talking with me in mid-February. As stated at the end of our conversation, the duo will be speaking at the Reintroduction and Rewilding Summit in April. In the meantime, there is of course much more information on their website at celticreptileamphibian.co.uk and you can follow them on Twitter at CelticReptile. They also have an Instagram page and a growing YouTube channel. Thank you very much for listening.